Parsha's Vera, seeing his wonders. When we come to Parsha's Vera, we should make an attempt at understanding the general purpose of all the plagues that came upon Mitzrayim. As we read about the remarkable events that transpired at that time, we shouldn't merely relegate it to being a Torah narrative. Instead, we should think about the following question. What was the intention that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had by staging such remarkable spectacles? It's actually very important for us to understand this clearly because it occupies a great part in our history and it's a big part of our Torah. And for us, it's important not only in connection with our Sedra this week, we'll soon see that its lessons are vital for our world outlook and our private everyday lives. The Torah states as openly as could be what the Makkas came for. V'yadu Mitzrayim ki ani Hashem. And Mitzrayim should know that I am Hashem. Va'era. It's said once, and again and again, it's repeated. Ba'avor teida, so that you should know. Ki ein kamoni b'chol that there is none like me. So once and for all, let's get this clear. The purpose of the ten plagues, the motivation of the makos, was to teach the lesson of the creator of the world. Did these plagues succeed in their purpose? Absolutely. They succeeded immensely you know that the Jews were always a standoffish and aloof people. From the beginning, we were a nation that dwells alone, Bamidbar. We didn't intermarry. We didn't mix with the other nations. And yet, we have among us in our nation admixtures of blood of other races. There are all kinds of races among Jews because very many people came from the nations throughout the generations and joined us. Sometimes in big numbers, but never in our history did such a big number of converts join our people as when we went out of Mitzrayim. Vigam Erevlav ala itam. A great admixture went up with the Am Yisroel. Shemos. Erev means admixture, and Rav means a great number. They were so influenced by the lessons of the Makos that they joined our people. It means that in addition to the 12 Shavatim, a great number of Egyptian Gerim came up from Mitzrayim. And together, they came to Har Sinai, and they all said, And they meant it. Seriously. And many of them still have descendants among us today. We have among us more Egyptians than we have of any other race. Today, already, we are not capable of tracing back their path in our history, but they are among us. They are Erev who have become greater than us. There is no question that we have Talmidei Chachamim and Sadikim, famous Roshi Yeshiva in our history, who are descended from them. Now, to better understand the significance of this, we have to understand that there were many Bnei Yisrael who did not leave Mitzrayim. There were quite a number of us who remained in Mitzrayim. You know, we are accustomed to say that the Rashayim were left behind. We say in the Haggadah, Shel Pesach, that when the son, the Rasha, speaks up, so the father tells him, You wouldn't have left Mitzrayim if you would have been there. 
So we think that all those who didn't leave were to Shayim. However, it's an error. It's not true. It's only relatively that they are called Rishayim. They weren't as good as those who went out, and only the best were permitted to leave. The ones who came out were called Truma, just like the Truma is the special portion that is lifted up from the grain. So too the Am Yisrael, who came out of Mitzrayim, were the Truma of those who were left behind. But the truth is that had those who were rejected lived today, they would have comprised one of the finest of communities. It would have been a Meisharim and surely a Borough Park. We would have been proud of those so-called wicked ones. It's only that compared to the great generations that left Mitzrayim, they were considered unfit and they were rejected. Now, if that's the case, then you can begin to understand who the Erev Rav were. They were the flower of Egypt, the intellectual aristocracy of Egypt. Not like people think that they were. Some motley, ragged multitude recruited from the back streets and slums of Egypt. Oh no! The Am Yisrael didn't take any riffraff with them when they went out of Egypt. They allowed only the very best to come along. The nobility. How did such a thing happen? How did it happen that people gave up their estates and left behind their palaces to go out into the wilderness and choose to share the fate of a foreign nation? The answer is, the Makos, the plagues were such a clear demonstration of the hand of Hashem that many Egyptians were permanently transformed. It changed them from head to toe and made them worthy of joining us. These people went through a course of training the first course was Dam, and the second course was Sephardea, a more advanced form of awareness of Hashem. Kinim was another course. Each one of the Makos was an education in itself, and each time a new Mako was visited on Mitzrayim, everybody got busy studying it. Of course, the Bnei Israel were the most diligent of students, but in the palaces of Egypt, the intelligentsia were also busy discussing it. And those Egyptians who made the greatest progress in studies, those who graduated with honors, they were the ones who merited to leave Mitzrayim with the Bnei Yisrael. And yet, at the same time, we know that some of the nobility of Egypt did not gain anything from these lessons. Paro and his chief ministers closed their eyes. They did not learn from these events. But Yehazak lev Paro velo shamak. Alehem. Paro strengthened his heart and refused to listen. Aida. Makkah after Makkah, they refused to see Hashem in what was happening all around them. Others, yes, the good ones saw and they were convinced. Hayoide as Dvar Hashem. Those who were willing to open their eyes became aware of Hashem. They looked around and said, Etzba Elohim hu. It's the finger of Elohim. But Paro and his chief counselors saw nothing. When the Nile turned to blood, all over Egypt, people were talking. Look at that. The Nile is red. The Nile is red. Men and women, boys and girls, were talking about it the day and night. It was a remarkable sight. So we think, if the Nile turned to blood, then it's all settled. 
It's a miracle that convinces everyone. And what about Paro? So we're convinced that Paro was an obtuse fool. He and his ministers were just bumbling idiots. That's what we think. But that's not the case. We know that in ancient Egypt, there was a good deal of learning among the upper class. Paro wasn't a simpleton, and he wasn't blind either. Only that he said what many people say today. You read it in the modern books on the Bible, the college editions from university professors, that it happens from time to time, that a certain algae appears in the water, a red bacteria that under certain conditions can multiply very quickly, and it makes the water look bloodied. Not so long ago, in the Middle Ages, we suffered from such things. You know, the Catholic Church has a doctrine called transubstantiation. They had certain wafers and were kept in the church. And one of the principles that they teach is that the wafer is the flesh of Oysa Ha'ish, that his flesh that's being eaten. When the faithful come for communion and they munch one of the wafers, they think they're actually eating his flesh. Now, this doctrine was hotly debated among their scholars until finally they were able to prove it. Prove it. Because sometimes, when they arrived in the church in the morning, they found that the wafers were red. They had a reddish tinge to them. Oh my, they said, the wafers are bleeding. It's a proof, they said, to the shita of transubstantiation. It's bisaro mamash. It's actually the mamzer's flesh. Why did the wafer start bleeding, however? What happened all of a sudden? Ah, for this, they had an explanation. Listen to the Chochmah Bagoyim. They said that it must be that some mean Jew sneaked into the church in the middle of the night and he pierced the wafer with a dagger. That was his way of getting even with their savior. He stuck a dagger into the wafer. You understand already how intelligent this is? A Jew would risk his life for this fun because the Jew believes it also. They imagine that this from Jew believed their foolish claims and that he was so convinced by the doctrine that this is the flesh that he stuck a dagger into and we suffered because of their foolish accusations. The Jews were given what they deserved, not only this one that they blamed but the whole community suffered. Subsequently, the matter has been investigated and now they know that there is a certain reddish microorganism that grows on the wafer and can multiply rapidly. And sometimes it even looks like blood. Today they keep the communion wafers refrigerated. But in the Middle Ages, they were kept in a box and therefore it's not surprising that such things happened. Now Paro certainly had experience with things like that. He wasn't a fool. He said, the Nile is red. I'm not that gullible. It's just a reddish bacteria that multiplies quickly, that has caused the river to be ruined. It's true. Sometimes there is a reddish discoloration, a bacteria that can be found in the seas. Now I'm an amateur at this. I'm given a very juvenile explanation of what Paro actually said. But don't think Paro merely looked at the water like a dumb ox and didn't know what to say. Oh, no. He had plenty to say. And he said to his officials, don't be taken in by this cunning fellow. 
Don't forget, Moshe grew up in this palace. He's an educated man, and he's not a youngster either. He's already 80 years old, and he knows these symptoms. He knows all the tricks. It could be he smelled or tasted the water, and he knew beforehand that under these circumstances, this would probably happen. He was able to foretell that tomorrow this would happen. Don't be fooled by this trickster. And therefore, Paro had an explanation, and he was able to withstand the effects that were intended by the Maka of Dam. Look, you had to be a very big action to say that the Nile was red because of microorganisms. But a very stubborn person could say it. And every Maka was like that. Every plague could have been attributed, if you were really stubborn, to natural causes. Sifardea, Fra. Frogs are not a new phenomenon in a river. The fact that suddenly there are multiple of frogs doesn't have to be a nace. We even have documented cases when frogs rain down from the sky on certain districts. There's a book called Low, written by a Michiganer. Charles Fort was his name, who went around collecting these types of stories. He wrote other books, too. I have them at home. And he documents a case where a hail of frogs rained down in the thousands. Now, if such things can happen, why shouldn't Paro explain it all away? So Sephardea was a natural result of the Maka of Dam. The river became spoiled, and therefore, frogs developed. A river that is stagnant produces frogs. A river that flows freely and quickly sweeps away all the tadpoles. They get lost downstream. But when there's stagnant water, so the tadpoles increase and they multiply. The truth is, that's what the Abarbanel says happened. He explains the sequence of the plagues in a plausible way. The waters became bloody and corrupted, which caused the proliferation of the frogs. Lice also resulted from the lack of water for bathing and washing clothes. The influx of wild animals into the deserted cities was caused by the maddening effects of rabies and other diseases from the infested waters. And then from the lice, a pestilence developed, followed by the terrible sores of Shechin. Now the Malbim is not happy with that. He doesn't like that idea. But if the Abarbanel said it, surely Paro had even better reasons to say it. And the truth is that both attitudes can be utilized to understand what really happened. We certainly follow the Malbim that these plagues needed no support of cause and effect. And yet the Abarbanel is perfectly correct in the attitude caused to Paro by the apparent plausibility of such a sequence. And he surely utilized these arguments to remain stubborn. Now we should pay good attention to this story because we will see that it applies to us as much as it did to Paro. And it's very important for us to understand this clearly because it's not merely a matter of learning Chumash. Learning Chumash is very important. It's our life breath. More important than that. Whatever is in the Torah is not merely an episode in the Torah. It's a Torah, a teaching for the future. And we are expected to live with the teachings of the Chumash. And one of the teachings here is that you can witness incredible miracles, marvelous happenings, and remain obtuse and unimpressed. You have to know 
that we are lucky we weren't in Mitzrayim? Don't be deceived. If our generation had been there, we wouldn't have been too impressed. For Dam, we would have given the same explanation as Paro. For Sephardea and Kinim, too, we would have given scientific or pseudoscientific explanations. We would not have seen Hashem as clearly as we imagine. Don't we do that always? Here's a medical student in the laboratory, and he's being told by his professor that a piece of tissue has certain functions, and it's able to do this and this. Now, if he would be willing to open his eyes and see, he would ponder this. He would think about it. How could it happen that this piece of tissue can produce secretions, enzymes that are essential to the human body? We know of at least 1,000 enzymes that are essential for our well-being. Some of them actually keep us alive. And they're formulated in precisely complicated formulas. If you would take all the elements in the world, all the combinations, and put them in a billion test tubes and shake them up for a billion years under every conceivable condition of temperatures and pressures, it would not happen that even one enzyme would be created. And yet, this medical student remains blind to it all. No less than Pato was blind to it all. He hardens his heart. It's not a matter of him believing in evolution. I'm talking now about a firm boy. He laughs at evolution. But no matter... He doesn't let the etzba elokim that's right in front of his face affect him. He doesn't see HaKadosh Baruch Hu in that enzyme or in that cell or in the microbe. The truth is that a medical student today has before him in the school osos umofsim that are actually bigger than miracles of Mitzrayim. Not only a medical student, every one of us, just by walking on the street, one can see miracles that are no less than the makos. The trees and the leaves and the snow and the rain are no less than the Etzpa Elohim, than the Makos were. Only that we don't bother looking. We don't bother thinking. And that's what we say to all those who need proof of Hashem. They ask, why doesn't he perform the same demonstrations today just like he did back then? Then we would believe. Why doesn't he turn rivers into blood every day? Why don't frogs come pouring out of the Hudson River into Manhattan and make their way into the movie theaters and all the places of ill repute in Times Square? Now that would be a sight. That way, every man in every generation will have a testimony to Hashem and to his power. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Look, I gave you the lesson already. I revealed myself to you. It can happen twice or three times because it loses its edge. It becomes meaningless. How many times do you want me to break my word that uphold nature? Why don't you go out and study the world the way that I made it? That's what Hashem says. The laws of nature. That's what I want to follow. Everything has to go according to the laws of the nature that I invented, says Hashem. Rivers are supposed to be water, not a messy substance that befouls the fields and frogs are only supposed to be in a certain proportion. Frogs are very useful. Frogs catch mosquitoes. 
They're part of an ecosystem. But once you have too many frogs, what are you going to do with them? How are you going to get rid of them? So what do you want? To bring more miracles? You'll spoil my whole business here. I know how to run my world. Nature, that's my world. Not like people think that the miracle is his world. No, nature is his world. Actually, there's no such thing as nature. It's all Bria. It's all creation. And if it's created, it means there's a creator. Nature is just Greek. It's a Greek word which the Greeks conjured up in order to conceal the boide. In order not to talk about Hashem, they said, nature, kuzari. But we're learning something now that might come as a surprise to you. Don't think it's only the Greeks. Actually, that was the plan of our Kaddish Baruch Hu. Listen now, because you're going to hear the secret of creation. The secret of everything in the world is that it should be a secret. That's why Adam Arishan came after creation. The first six days, our Kaddish Baruch Hu created all the phenomena by supernatural means. There were no seeds, and Hashem caused the trees to appear. Grass appeared. Rivers appeared. Frogs appeared. That's the teaching of the Torah. And you have to get any other pictures of the origin of life out of your head. Everything came yesh me'ayin. Something out of nothing. And the nothing was Hashem's word. And then, after the six days of creation, that's when Adam came. When Adam first opened his eyes, he saw a ready-made world. You know, had we been present during those six days, we would have been convinced of the power of Hashem without a shadow of a doubt. Every time you would see a blade of grass for the rest of your life, you would understand that it's actually the etzba Elohim. And the truth is that it's a question. Wouldn't that have been a better way? Adam should have come around in the very beginning. And he should have watched when Hashem said, Tad Shehaaretz and Toitzi Haaretz. Ooh, would that have been a sight? He would have been convinced like nobody's business. And he would have spoken about it to his descendants. Seeing is believing after all. And the whole world would be relieved of any possibilities of error. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu's plan was that it shouldn't be that easy. He said, Adam should come when it's all over. And now he opens his eyes for the first time and he sees a natural world. A world that's functioning all on its own. Asher bara Elohim la'asois. Elohim created that from now everything would be functioning by itself. The rain cycle and seeds and food and children and clouds and daisies and apples, and roses, and everything. Lasois means that the world seemingly functions on its own, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the background. It means that Hashem created this world in order to deceive all of mankind, to make it a secret that they shouldn't see how this world came into being. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted the world to be a place of error, that's an important point that you're hearing now. Lasois is actually the most important fact that we're told about the Bria. 
no matter how great is the principle that our Kaddish Baruch Hu made everything out of nothing, it's more important to know the principle that it's a secret. You can't understand anything if you don't understand that. The intention was to make this world a place of error, where the truth is concealed, a place where day in and day out you'll be tested. Will you make your heart hard and ignore everything around you? Or will you look and see the Atzba Elohim in the Bria? And so that's our subject for tonight. Actually, it's our subject for life. What is man's function in this world? To see how much he can exert himself to discover the truth. That's the statement from Misil Shishodim in chapter 1. Kol hem lidam. Everything in the world was created for the purpose of testing man. Once you understand this thesis, that the world was made in order to conceal the truth, and that mankind is being put to a test to see whether they'll be able to peer through this thick veil of deception that our Kaddish Baruch Hu put up and recognize the hand of the Creator. So now you're ready to go out into the world. You're ready to pass the test. The world is full of demonstrations that our Kaddish Baruch Hu is around, very much around. And you're prepared now to make use of all of them. And even though the world is made to look like it came by itself, everything is lasois, working in cycles that repeat themselves to deceive people who don't think. But if you study it in the right manner, you will see wonderful demonstrations of the wisdom of Hashem, of plan and purpose. But the same phenomena, the wonders of plan and purpose that can make people recognize the Boide, that same phenomena can deceive those who are too lazy, too hard-headed to see Hashem everywhere they go. Like a certain evolutionist once wrote, he said this world is full of the most complicated and wonderful design. You hear that? Design. But he never made the next deduction. That design means there's a designer. You can't have a design without a designer. They say, look, it's natural. And that means that they're being deceived by something that is of the most wonderful contrivance. But for those of us who want to succeed, we know that just by walking on the street, one can see miracles that are no less than the Makkus. The entire Brio was made as an opportunity to recognize the Boide. And anybody who wants to see Hashem can see Hashem in nature. To see a daisy growing out from a crack in the street on a summer day, falling leaves in the fall, or snow falling on a winter day, is no less of the Etzba Elohim than Makas Dam. Springtime, summertime, wintertime, it doesn't matter. You can see Hashem on all sides if you're really interested in seeing the truth. Now, if you can't do it yourself, meet me someday and I'll take a walk with you. I'll show you something that could open your eyes just the same as Dam, Sifardeya, and Kinim. I'll show you a rose bush. Now, don't be disappointed when you hear that. I was walking with some boys last week and we stopped by some rose bushes and I said, 
Look at the thorns on these roses. The rose is a beautiful flower, and as we pass by, we might have the urge, perhaps not us, but some other person might have a Yezid Hara to pull out the bush and take it with him to plant in his garden. But as he would try to take it, he would find that the rose is well armed. All the thorns on the thorn bush point downwards. So when he tries to pull upwards, he finds the Kabbalah's Panim committee ready to greet him, just in the right position. He pulls up, and the dagger is pushed down into his hand, and he changes his mind. He leaves the rose bush alone. Now it could be that many of us pass by rose bushes again and again, and not once do we think about the Etzba Elohim. We won't stop to notice that the daggers are pointed down. It's an interesting thing, because in nature, nothing happens like that. Pointed things don't happen by accident. If it's pointed, there's a purpose there. Even the Roshayim understand that. They'll tell you the purpose is to defend the plant. But like Pado, they miss the point altogether. We are expected to think about who is defending the plant. The plant has no seichel. It's HaKadosh Baruch Hu's design. It's the handiwork of the designer. Just to notice the daggers and to marvel at the science without recognizing the Etzba Elohim, you're missing out on everything. It's like what they tell about Newton. When Newton was sitting under the apple tree, an apple fell down on his head. So Newton started saying, Oh, why did it fall down? Why didn't the apple fall up? That's a chachma of a wise guy. He was interested in physics. Why didn't it fall up? So he discovered the law of gravity. The earth is bigger than the apple. So the earth attracts the apple to itself. Oh, a very great chachma. Only that Newton made an error. He did not go far enough. He should have asked, why did it fall at all? It should have remained on the tree. The branches don't fall off. So why should the apple fall off? And why does it wait until it gets ripe? Why didn't it fall off when it was still green? It waited until it was ripe and sweet and soft. And then it fell off by itself. Newton should have thought about this miracle. How is it that for months and months, as long as the apple was unripe, it held on tightly to the tree? And then, as soon as it became ready to eat, it began to fall. It means the apple tree knows that you don't have wings, that you can't fly up to pick it. It means that you see Hashem in the apple tree. Oh, that discovery would have made Newton a great man. But he wasn't big enough to do that. To discover the law of gravity, he was capable. But the law of Etzba Elohim, he didn't discover. So the boys and I made sure we weren't going to make that same mistake. We stood by the rose bush and we marveled at the creation of Hashem. That's what you're supposed to do. Don't just pass by. Every rose bush that you pass is a glorious opportunity. Not only roses, everything. Did you ever see an apple hanging from a branch? When an apple appears on a tree, you should gasp. An apple on the tree. How did that happen? 
I was 40 years old the first time I saw apples growing on a tree. I was a city boy. I never saw apples hanging on a tree. For a city boy, apples grow in the big bins in front of the store. That's all. But I was once in a shul. I used to dive it in the morning there. I was the only coin. I didn't want to monopolize all the alias. So before Kriyasa Toida, I would walk out into the yard so that I shouldn't be called up to the Toida. So I walked out on that first day and I saw a sight, a tree, and red apples were hanging on that tree. I was amazed. I never saw such a thing before. It was the Etzpa Elohim, no less than the Makos. We have to get into our heads that Hashem is speaking to us from the rose bush and the apple tree as much as Dam and Sifardea were speaking in Mitzrayim. Now as we're standing there by the rose bush, we saw a bee coming towards us because the bee wanted to draw some nectar from the rose. We watched the bee climb inside that rose to get the nectar and pollen fell upon her wings as they brushed against the stamen of the rose. So we saw a marvelous thing. The bee was only thinking about getting nectar to make honey. But while it was doing that, it was bringing pollen from a different rose because a rose cannot pollinate itself. It needs pollen from a different flower. And so the pollen that the bee brought from elsewhere rubbed off on this flower and the pollen that it took from this rose will be brought to a different place to be rubbed off there. That's how the bee is a shaliach of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's only a part of the story. If you look carefully at the legs of the bee, you see that she has little baskets on her legs and little brushes. It's a fact. It has baskets and brushes because she needs pollen too. Besides the pollen that he accidentally gathers, she needs it to take home. He makes pollen cakes for the larva in the beehive. And therefore, she has brushes and baskets to collect the pollen. Did it happen by accident that the bee has brushes and baskets? It just happened that way? Of course, she doesn't know her purpose. She's out for honey. But actually, that little bee is pollinating 100,000 different species of flowers and fruits. And that little bee is also preparing pollen cakes for the larva. Of course, if you're not hard-hearted yet, you'll see that it's not a little bee at all. It's the Etzba Elohim. I picked a dandelion for the boys with whom I was walking last week. You know a dandelion has two stages. There's a yellow flower stage and there's a stage when it's in the seed bowl. A colorless gray seed bowl stage. I showed them that the seed bowl always grows higher than the yellow flower. The yellow flower, after it's pollinated, it loses its yellow flower and it becomes a gray seed bowl. And then it jumps up much higher than it was when it was a yellow flower. Why is that? Because when it's a seed bowl, the little parachutes in the seed bowl have to be blown out to go elsewhere and plant more seeds, more flowers. But if it would grow on the same level as a yellow dandelion, it's too low in the grass. So the parachutes would get caught among the surrounding grass. So when it reaches the seed ball stage, it jumps high above the grass. And now it has no grass surrounding it. It has a free field on all sides 
for its parachutes to float. I picked up a seed ball and puffed it, and a hundred parachutes were floating in the air all around us. They were marveling. The yeshiva men were marveling when they saw it. One puff and a hundred parachutes with little seed packages on the bottom were floating in the air, each one perfectly balanced in the wind. Each one of them was ready for its mission to go off even miles away. They can even float across the ocean. The seeds are protected in a tough jacket that can withstand the salt brine of the sea. And if the ocean would wash them up on the shores of France or England, then as soon as it smells the earth, the jacket opens up and it begins to grow. It puts a little root into the ground and a little stem up towards the sun and it begins a new career. Now, once you open your eyes and start looking at these things, your mind opens up too. And you begin to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the whole Bria. You see Maaseh Yadav Shel HaKadosh Baruch Hu wherever you look. Now, of course, most people, when you say all these facts to them, it makes not the slightest impression because they're so deadened by apikorsus. From men in black hats and payas, can be apikorsim inside. They know. They know. They think they know everything. But it's almost nothing because they don't think about seeing Hashem around them at all. And it's the same as how Paro saw everything. In one ear and out the other. It's very hard to drive home to them that everything which we call nature is planned as an Isayan. It's a test, an opportunity for a career of greatness and it's a career that is never finished because to be convinced once is not enough. It's a job that must go on all of our lives. And therefore, if some observant Jew will say to you, why spend time studying all these things? If you are convinced, be like all of us and practice everything now and forget about looking for some more convincing. The answer is, that's not the shita of the Rishonim. The Rishonim say, there's never too much proof because it's a mitzvah to see things more and more clearly until your last day. And just like you will be an old man and you'll still be talking about the makos of Mitzrayim, afilu kulanu zikenim. Even old men must sit all night and talk about the makos. Seeing HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the world around us is no different because each time it gets into your bones, more and more. So if you're an old man and tomorrow morning you'll look and you'll see there's a daisy growing out of a crack in the ground, you won't harden your heart. A daisy doesn't just appear. Where do daisies come from? You know how daisies come. It's miracles upon miracles. It's too late to start talking about this subject of daisies. Maybe a different time. Or maybe you should think about it yourself the next time you see a daisy. Now, by listening to this, you're not prepared yet. You have to practice this Avoid Hashem every day, and you'll become adept in this art of recognizing HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the world. You don't need any books. You don't need libraries. All you need to do is open your eyes and stop making your heart hard. And you'll be able to discover HaKadosh Baruch Hu.
And for people who have eyes, the world is full of such miracles. You don't need to see rivers turning to blood to be a maimin. The makos and mitzayim serve only as a model to open up our eyes and to let us know nothing will help for the person who doesn't want to see. But for the person who is eager for the truth, the world holds for him miracles without number. It's not an exaggeration to say that the miracles that HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows us in the world all around us are no less than the miracles of Egypt. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Let's get practical. Seeing and being impressed. Every detail in nature is intended to be an eye-opener, a mind-opener, and our opportunities to see Hashem hiding in nature are endless. Every time I pass by a tree, or a fruit, or a flower, or any of the other millions of Niflais Haboide, and ignore it, I am hardening my heart to the spectacles that Hashem is showing to me. The way to begin softening the heart and to acquire tangible awareness of Hashem is by making use of the opportunities around us. This week, at least once per day, I will stop to study one of the demonstrations that Hashem is making for me and practice revealing the secret of Hashem in this world.